0: Please come in and make yourself comfortable. I'm looking forward to this morning, as usual. Talk about an important topic, an important figure in church history. So before we begin, let's let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. Father God, thank you so much for bringing us all together again this morning. What a privilege to assemble together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Those whom you've chosen to. Inherit the kingdom, those whom you've chosen to glorify and worship you in spirit and truth for all eternity. Thank you for the Christ and the foundation he laid. Thank you for the work of the apostles and the saints who went after them. At this time in church history, it's, it's incumbent upon us to reconnect ourselves with the men whose shoulders we stand on so that we can emulate their faith, learn from their mistakes, and continue to build upon the legacy that they left behind. May we be encouraged by studying this man, John Huss, your servant. May we be encouraged and equipped to minister for your glory. Amen. So we're going to continue our class on the reformation via learning from a few six or seven or so reformers. And again just to review 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And it's 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 really a, a an amazing milestone. And The significance cannot be overstated the reformation as most of you know was a time in our church history That discovered Or rediscovered the truth of the scriptures first and foremost Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it, right? so It is not because of these men that the gospel was brought out of darkness back into the light. So, lest anybody accuse me of glorifying these men, I want to make sure that it was in spite of these men, not because of these men, that the Reformation happened. At the end, God is the hero. God is the one who drew these men out of darkness and saved them. God is the one who equipped them, gifted them. And put them at the right place at the right time. So he is the hero. At the same time, however, we do see in Scripture where we are to esteem men. We are to emulate their faith and we are to submit to them. Learn from their mistakes. And honor them for the work they have done. And so we could not talk about the Reformation without talking about a man named John Huss. Typically, Martin Luther is attributed as being the one that sparked the movement, and he is. At the same time, he stood on the shoulders of John Huss and John Wycliffe. Last week, we talked about John Wycliffe, who was the man who did what? Who remembers? By translating the the Bible into English from what? The Latin Vulgate. The very first English translation came from John Wycliffe, whom was motivated to do this based on his discovery that the Roman Catholic Church at that time had veered significantly off the path that scripture lays out for us. So, in a different country around the same time was a Bohemian man named John Huss who is also known as one of the forerunners of the reformation. Today here's our agenda. Keep it keep it going, keep the same pace here, keep the same routine. We'll talk about his early life, his work, his trial, which is Pretty dramatic, his legacy, and then if you have any questions, we can, we can uh, deal with those. So, John's early life. He was born in 1373 in a town called Hustenitz in Prague, which is the Czech Republic. His mother was a widow. Uh, John's father, while he was young. And his mom was his primary influence. She took him to school in Prague. And he earned a bachelor's, master's, and uh, began to teach quickly after he was ordained as a priest. So, what have you already begun to see as a common theme in the lives of these Reformers? Well-educated, well right? They are, they are scholars, and I want to be clear to say, the Bible does not say you have to have a formal degree to be a pastor, right? It's absolutely true. It, it, having a formal degree does not qualify you to be a minister. It just equips you. At the same time, however, we, we do need to, to highly value um, formal training in the Word. It, 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 it is it is to be of value. It is to be sought when possible, but it's not necessary. As we see, all of the reformers, all of them, were highly educated men. The apostle Paul, right? He was one of the highly, one of the most highly educated Pharisees in his day, and God used all of that high level training. To fuel the spread of the Reformation. These men were skilled in philosophy, they were skilled in rhetoric and speech and grammar and language and all of those things. So he was appointed to teach at the University of Prague, which is one of the oldest universities in Germany. He became rector of that university. And then in 1402, he began to preach at Bethlehem Church in Prague, where he preached in the Czech language. So we're starting to see a little bit of a turning point already in the history of Christian ministry. The more he preached from the word, the more he changed. The more he studied the word, the more he proclaimed the word with boldness and with authority and with clarity, something riveting happened. Is the suspense killing you? He also discovered John Wycliffe. His writings were brought to the Czech Republic By a friend of John Huss. And he was greatly moved by them. Remember from last week. John Wycliffe had started to write. Or publish. publish, um, Critiques of the Roman Catholic Church. Right. Critiques of the abuses. Of the Roman Catholic Church. um, Indulgences. The immorality. Amongst the um, high level hierarchy. Of the church. And. Huss was astounded by them. He was greatly moved. He was touched. He began to have his thinking reformed. So then he got to work. Because of his preaching, because of his teaching in the university... The Pope found out about it and he issued a bull. You guys know what a papal bull is? Anybody not not know what that means? A papal bull is simply an official published declaration by the Pope. And so if the Pope published a bull, it was was binding, it was law. And so when, when the Pope published this document of declaring somebody a heretic... No butts, no cuts, no coconuts. That was it. You were a heretic. You were excommunicated. You were an enemy of the one true church. As we'll see later, what Martin Luther would do with his papal bulls, he would burn them publicly. In defiance to to the tyranny of the Pope. So, that was common. This papal bull ordered that Wycliffe's works would be given up. And the preaching... Of the gospel would be discontinued. But you think that stopped us? Of course not. Because he's a reformer. And if that would have been enough to stop us. Then we wouldn't be talking about him right now. And he wouldn't have been a reformer. So he continued to preach. And he became bolder and bolder. In his accusations of the church. And I get that. Right? Those of you who have been here long enough know that. That this is one of my really hardcore passions. The more I study the scripture, the more I study church history, the more I study the official doctrine of Rome, the more emboldened I get to teach about it, to educate people about it, so that souls may be rescued from it. And so you may be equipped to deal with these things. So he grew more and more vocal about about, the attacks on, uh, about his attacks on clerical abuses. He openly questioned the Catholic doctrine of the mass. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a rabbit trail here. How many of you know what the mass is centered around? Or when you think of the mass, what, what should be the first thing to come into your mind? Anybody? it's the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the center, is the mass. That is, and if you read in the Roman Catholic Catechism, they say that is the sacrament of sacraments. We'll see. And so so I, I know you love me and you trust me, but I, I still don't want you to take my word for it, okay? So I, I want to read a few sentences from the catechism of the catholic church which is their doctrinal standard okay so to be fair and to be honest when we're critiquing the roman catholic church what we should we what should we do go to the go to the original source right we shouldn't always depend on secondary or or, or or third level sources right that's i mean in seminary i would have flunked if i did that you have to go to the original source so if you if you go to the the catholic church you'll see that they're, they're it's structured in paragraphs okay so ccc catechism of the catholic church paragraph 1331 says holy communion because by this by this sacrament we unite ourselves to christ now all kinds of sirens and red flags should be going off in your mind Are we united with Christ through a sacrament? That's not a trick question. No. We're united to Christ by faith. Say that. Faith. Yes. Okay. Okay. Paragraph 1407. The Eucharist, which comes from the Greek word eulogia, which means to give thanks. The Eucharist is the heart and summit of. Of the church's life, loud sirens, red flashes, full stop. Why is that wrong? What is the heart of the church's life? The gospel, right? The, this Eucharist is is worthless. It's a it's a it's a it's an act of idolatry without. True regeneration, pre- being present. Okay, so now I do need to make this caveat too, lest I get misunderstood. Is it possible? Is it possible that that, that there are truly regenerate Roman Catholics approaching a false altar on a Sunday morning shirt? Sure. Right, I, I, I can't see everyone's heart, we can't do that. But if we're going to judge the Catholic Church by what they profess to believe, we have to be honest and bold enough to say that this Eucharist, this Mass, only perpetuates a life of idolatry. Now, one more paragraph, and I'll stop for now. It is Christ himself according to paragraph 410, the eternal high priest of the new covenant who, acting through the ministry of the priests, that's another issue altogether, offers the Eucharistic sacrifice. It is the same Christ really present under the species of bread and wine who is the offering of the Eucharistic sacrifice. What's the problem there? (laughs) It's... It's, it, that, that's, that's where, what, if you heard the term transubstantiation, that, that's how we get that. They they literally believe, okay, that 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 through the liturgy of an ordained priest, that the elements, the bread, the wafer, and the wine, literally becomes Christ, and is being offered up as a perpetual sacrifice for those who partake. There's a, there's a lot more. Maybe one day we'll have a class on, on, on the Roman Catholic Church. It would be, I think, would be really helpful. But let's get back to John Huss. This, this is stuff that John Huss was protesting, and this is the stuff they still believe. Okay? So there, there's what the cover looks like. If you're interested, um, you, could, you could buy it. You, you could go online and read it for free at this website. Just Google um catechism of the catholic church um and and you can you can uh, browse all of it on that website so back to john huss there he is preaching kind of a, a traditional rend- painting of of john huss preaching up here in his pulpit right here and he's preaching out to those who are listening in the chapel and uh and that's, that's, that's where, that's the primary place where John Huss started to launch the Reformation. That's why Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you guys know who he is? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones? He, that's why he said that, 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 you know, I'm paraphrasing. He quoted this in the Deacon book, if, you guys, if, if some of the men read that. That, that, that what, what heralds the dawn of a new Reformation is renewed preaching. And so it was the preaching out to to the people that began to cause a ruckus and started to change things. So he began to denounce indulgences. The Pope accused him of heresy and was forced into exile. While in exile, he published De Ecclesia concerning the church. And that work, he challenged the authority of the pope and the cardinals by saying that they were not the church. What is the church? Does the church consist of the pope and his cardinals and the hierarchy? It's the people. Right? It's the people. It's, it's the people who are saved. It's the, it's the, it's the elect. It's God's children. Okay? That's why there's nothing special about this building nothing it's just plain jane four walls what makes this place holy and special is you guys being here singing and worship hearing the preaching and reading the scripture that's what makes this gathering holy right so he also claimed that the foundation of the church was christ and not peter how is that significant? Where does the Roman Catholic Church justify or defend their view of the papacy? Anybody? Right, Matthew sixteen, right? So, so they will claim that that, that the the papacy goes all the way back to Peter. And and your and in your evangelism and apologetics with Roman Catholics. I've seen that one of the most powerful doctrines and one of the most enslaving doctrines is their doctrine of apostolic succession. Because if you are dogmatically convinced that the pope, the vicar of Christ, Christ's representative on earth, is, um, is traced back to Peter. And this apostolic succession never, never ended. There was no break in that link. And therefore, the Pope remains um, possessing the authority of Peter. So that's why the, that's that's why the church cannot question him. Well, they can, but back then, if you did, it was it, it was you were signing your death certificate. So, whoops. All right, went went a little fast here. There we go. Oh, there we go. Okay, so in this work, he says, "If we obey, if we must obey, to whom is our obedience to be paid?" Okay, so just just time out for a second. Okay, I got ahead of myself. I'm sorry. So around this time, around around this time that that. Um, we, John Huss was becoming more well-known, and, and he was publishing his works, and he was preaching. What happened was, was there was a schism within the Catholic Church itself. Have you, anybody have heard of this before? At, at one time, there were three different popes. And so this is one, this is one of the, one of the a good arguments to ask a Roman Catholic when they, when they argue for absolute Succession, is, you know, what, what about the time when there were three different popes? Who, who, who do we believe, and how do we know the right one was picked? Anyway... So so John Hus called a spade a spade. And he used that to his advantage. So he said, If we must obey the Pope, who must our obedience be paid? John the twenty third, Gregory the Twelfth, Benedict the Thirteenth? If all three are infallible, why doesn't their testimony agree? And if only one of them is the most holy father, Why is it we can't distinguish from the rest? Instead of three popes, there are three antichrists in Christendom. And even now, even today, even now today, we we, we find that somewhat kind of offensive, right? I mean, we find that really kind of harsh and bold and and maybe like, you know, a a little brash, right? And and we, we don't like hearing that kind of language most of the time. So imagine... What that would have done to the average Catholic, let alone the the Pope himself. Shocking, shockingly offensive. But he's right. A man who would usurp Christ himself as the head of the church. How how, any more against Christ could you be? He also wrote, they they array, that should say they, pardon my my typo, they array, speaking to the the Catholic hierarchy, the bones of saints with silk and gold and silver and lodge them magnificently. But but they refuse clothing and hospitality to the poor, the, the poor members of Jesus Christ who are amongst us, at whose expense they feed to repletion. And drink till they are intoxicated. And so you got to wonder how, how many other poor laymen notice these things, and and yet we're we're not given the platform to say what, what needs to be said, or weren't given the the, the courage by God to to, to 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 call call this this spiritual abuse out. So I I, th- I think we, we need to thank men. We, we we need to we need to encourage the men who have the boldness to to sacrifice their lives, their you know, their to some extent their reputation, to say the hard things. Because if these men had any ounce of cowardice in them, who knows what we would be today. So here's his trial. He was summoned to uh Constance, Switzerland, to answer for his doctrine by the Pope. He was, he was promised safe passage by the emperor himself. And so um, I read in my research that, that John Huss says he came there willingly of his own free will. He, he did not want to, you know, he could have, but he didn't want to disobey his, his order to appear in court. So, he wrote that he expected to find more enemies at the council than Jesus Christ at Jerusalem. And I think he was right because there were 30 cardinals, 20 archbishops, 150 bishops, 1,800 priests were summoned by the Pope to attend this, this, this hearing. Huss wrote, I came here to speak in open council according to my ability which I trust that God will not withhold from me. That's what He said when He appeared before the Cardinals, and they asked Him, "What do you have to say for yourself?" I mean, just try to imagine. Try to imagine being in that being in that scenario. It's hard. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Knowing that what you say is going to depend whether you live or die. But he says, I came here to speak in open counsel according to the ability which I trust God will not withhold from me. That was shocking. Because it it, it was he wasn't recanting. He was basically saying what Luther said. Here I stand. So on the 26th day of the trial, 26th day, Huss was arrested and placed in prison for six months. After six months, and on June the 5th, he reappeared before the council. And they say, Do you recant? Are you ready to confess that you're wrong? And he says, how can I give up the doctrines which I have taught in full belief of their truth until I have been convinced of their fallacy? So on his 42nd birthday, he was condemned as, quote, not a disciple of Christ, but of John Wycliffe. Has anybody ever heard that before? You have? Yeah. Yeah, the question was, by this time, have they um, dug up Wycliffe's bones and threw him in the river? I don't remember what year. I have to go back and check my PowerPoint. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't remember what year. Does anybody... I can't remember all the all the dates. I'm not in seminary anymore. I don't have to. So, so that that's that, that that's not that's not an uncommon um, uh, uh, attack on somebody. Have you ever have you ever been have have you ever been told you're not a disciple of Christ? You're a disciple of John Piper, right? Oh, you're you're a Calvinist. You're not a Christian. You're no disciple of Jesus. You no, that, that know, kind, that kind of talk is, it floats around a lot, right? But to be a disciple of John Wycliffe was to be a disciple of Christ because John Wycliffe followed Christ, right? In the same way that Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ, right? It's not wrong to be a disciple of a man who is a disciple of Jesus Christ because that's how we're influenced. So that didn't phase John uh, John Huss. So after after this this pronouncement of him being a disciple of Wickliffe, the church brings him in front of an altar. Publicly, they defrock him of all his vestments. They take a pair of scissors and they carve a cross into his forehead, and they place a dunce cap on his head bearing pictures of demons. Now. This should make you a little upset. This This is Rome's history. This is Roman, the Roman Catholic Church's history. This isn't our history. Our history is not perfect either. But this is what they did to him. He was led to a place where he'd be executed via burn at the stake which was a typical um, style of execution for, for heretics. And as he was being led out of the defrocking ceremony, he was given one chance, one more chance to recant, to which he replied, I shall die with joy today in the faith of the gospel which I have preached. Now this is the primary reason why I love studying church history. I love the men's doctrine. I love their tenacity, their boldness. But to see these men be led away to a torturous death, unjust, torturous death. They 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 were they were joyful to die for Christ. Isn't that powerful? And another another reason why I think it's really important for for us to know these things is because um You know, I am by no means a, I don't know, what's the word? What kind of stuff was Farnell always into? Conspiracy. I am not into that stuff. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not going to stand up here and say, oh, America's going to hell in a handbasket and we're going to be persecuted for Jesus next year. We don't know. But we don't know. (laughs) We don't know how long the freedom that we enjoy right now is going to last, right? Other parts of the world, as we know, it's becoming harder and harder to be a gospel-believing Christian. And so we, we know very little of persecution, don't we? And I think, you know, being in the company of these men makes us think about that. To prepare ourselves, if if there ever comes a time where we will need to face persecution, we're, we're, we're in their company. It's nothing new. And if they went to their death rejoicing, singing a hymn, he he as he was being led away, he was singing a hymn. If they can do that, why can't we? There's another historical rendition of. Huss being burned at the stake. Um, I also read in this, in this book, if you guys want to look at this book after the class, you're welcome to take, borrow it. Um, it's, it's a 45-page booklet on, on John Huss. And uh, in this little book, he talks about how uh, the fire had went out before it could burn his whole body. Uh, the book says that his his, his legs was the only part of his body that that were completely burnt. But but the the church officials were so inflamed with rage and they hated him so much that that they, they relit the fire so his entire body could be burned to ashes. And then, when that had took place, they dug four feet into the ground to make sure they got every speck of ash so that they could throw it into the river. What, what do you say to that? What do you say? You can't. You can't. You just marvel. So his legacy... His primary offense was preaching the scripture alone. Preaching what the Bible says. Preaching the plain reading of scripture. Plain meaning. He discovered that the people are the church, not the ecclesiastical hierarchy. And uh, his name literally means goose in Czech. And that's why this 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 little tiny biography is John Huss the Goose. Just one second. So he's he's finally known as the goose that became a swan. And there there is an urban legend. There is a I don't know how I was to say it. There there, there is a a well known common quote. Of John Huss that says something like today you will cook a goose, but in a hundred years from now there will arise a swan. Has anybody heard that before? And some, some folks believe that he was referring to Martin Luther. Because John Huss died almost a hundred years before Luther. So, it's, it, so it, was, it, was, it was almost like a prophecy that was 95% accurate. A <laughs> hundred years later, John uh, Martin Luther did, did, did come on the scene. And he was influenced by Huss. And he was influenced by Luther. So you see, Luther stood on the shoulders of Huss. Huss stood on the shoulders of Wycliffe. So... I don't know for sure if uh, if if, if uh, Hus really said that. It's you, you, but you might hear it, um, maybe you've heard of it before. There's no evidence that he said that. It's mainly kind of an oral tradition that um, that, that that was said. So this is this is John Huss in a nutshell. Again, if you are more interested in learning about this, brother. Um, this little this little little booklet is 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 pretty fun to read and there might be a couple more resources out there. So, any questions, Aaron? Uh, the question is, the saying "Your goose is cooked." Does that come from John Huss? I don't know. <laughs> you know? Okay. Aaron thinks it is, so we'll go with that. Anybody else? Yeah, Anna. Yeah, the question is, why did the church uh, hate and persecute Wycliffe so much? It was partially because of his Bible, but it was partially because of his doctrine and partially because of the influence he had on um, a group of open-air preachers called the Lollard's. They, they, they were Wycliffe's followers that went out to the streets and they preached um, with their English version. And so, so Wycliffe's influence was spread through his translation, through his writings, and through his influence with those men. So it began to spread really quickly, and that's why the church just wanted him dead. And all of his Bibles burned, and, and uh, Lollards has got executed too. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Yeah. The question is, how does the Roman Catholic Church justify executing heretics biblically? And the answer is, they can't. Uh, right. I mean, the Bible. I mean, you treat them as a tax collector. That, that's that's Matthew. That's Matthew 18. Paul, Paul talks about the, I forget which book it is. anybody? First Corinthians five? Yeah, Paul talks about sending someone over to Satan. Yeah, obviously in the context he's not talking about physical punishment. So I, I think, and I'm, I, I you guys should um, confirm my, my my thinking, and I will, too. But I I, th- I think that practice of executing heretics originated um, from a Marriage between the state and the church, and so remember at this time um, the emperor and and the pope they were like husband and wife. They, they 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 were in fact the pope was the head that turned the monster, and the emperor was just the fist who execute you know who you know so so I think. Um, capital punishment for heresy was the norm primarily because of the marriage between the church and the state so does anybody else have a better answer or any other any other any other uh would it like would they add on that yeah so they were just going off of uh what they were being told, like, um, and that's one thing that John Huss, or excuse me, Wycliffe wrote about, was, was he, he he saw a distinction or a separation between the church and state, even you know 700 years ago. And so that's another thing that we as Americans, right? We 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 really, when when we think that religion and state are starting to get too close, we we don't like that, right? We we start to speak up. It's still not like that in a lot of parts of the world. In this book, uh, towards the end, it talks about how at this at, at, at Wycliffe's trial, there were also other the kind of noblemen, um, other important people, for lack of better words, like doctors and stuff. And and there's a quote quote he, in here from one guy who said, "If, if the Pope were to pronounce a man as having only one eye." We, we we should believe it, and so and so that so that's why you guys need to study this more because I'm only giving you a a snippet. the the degree to which um, the Roman Catholic Church had authority, unbiblical authority, is is was unlimited, and it was it it was just mind-boggling. So yeah. Yeah, of, of course, yeah, and, and, you'll, and, and still, um, though, since Vatican II, Vatican II was the last major council the Roman Catholic Church had in the 60s, Vatican II changed some things, but, but if you go into catechism of the Catholic Church, they still believe in papal infallibility, they still believe that there is a time where the Pope speaks ex-cathedra, out of the seat, and when he does that, he is, spoke, he is speaking infallibly on behalf of Jesus Christ. And so, so that kind of got reined in a little bit during Vatican II. But, but, but back then, as 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 John Hush wrote, um. You know, if if they're all infallible, if the Pope is infallible, how can there be three infallible men at the same time saying something different? Which one do we believe? And so. So yeah, it's um that that's that's one one main reason why all the reformers were so were were so fired up because not only were they preaching a false gospel, but but the the it was also that it was a doctrinal and a and an authority issue. So Yeah, I know there was at least one more that's brought up in this book. Um, I, I don't know how many. I, I don't think this is an exhaustive um, biography, and, and only you know in you know the ten or so hours I I studied. I mean, I, I could spend another 500 hours studying him. And so that's a good question. Oh, the qu- the question was, are there any other works that John Huss wrote other than the ones I mentioned? And I think there. I just don't know. I'm sorry. There was at least one more that I didn't mention other than that. I'm not sure. At which time the time when Huss died, uh, at the time he died, I don't remember when that was when that was eventually ironed out um, yeah, yeah well from from what I read. Yeah, the question is: is, is, is the same pope the, the same pope condemned both Wycliffe and Huss? That's what you're asking, and um, I'm not sure. I, I, I'd have to I'd have to go back and and, and find that because I, I don't I don't want to. 1417. Okay, so at this time that 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 um, schism was still going on. Yeah. And in this book, I think it does mention how how that that did influence uh, the his trial in some way, um, making it a little bit more prolonged or whatever. Because I do remember one of the popes, one of the professing popes in this little booklet, did, um there is mention of how he was also arrested and dealt with. I don't know how they dealt with him. What do they do? I mean if if they burn heretics, what, what what should they do with people claiming to be the Pope, but they're not? I don't know. It doesn't say what they did, did with them. But I should end, um, so we can we can uh get ready for worship. So thank you for coming and thank you for attention, thank you for interacting with me. Um I hope this was enlightening and and, and encouraging for you. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much again for our time together. Thank you for raising up John Huss. Who helped pave the way for the Reformation. Lord, we know that the dice, they fall into the lap, but every decision is from you. We know that you sit on the throne and you reign and you do what you please. We know that you use sinful men to do things that we don't understand. But we also know that you raise up saints to do miraculous things. And so we thank you, Lord, that you did raise up John Huss to speak the truth. To have the boldness and courage to do what he did. May we emulate that part of his life. May we be discerning enough to detect error and heresy. May we be courageous enough to speak it rightly and speak at the right time. May we continue to stand on his shoulders in this church by preaching the word and offering the gospel freely to all who hear.